From 1988 to 1998, Korean Air had more airline crashes than any other airline. In fact, they had 17 times more crashes than United in that time frame. Now, that immediately should be triggering warnings and alarm bells and red flags to wonder what on earth would cause such a significant devastation. You might wonder, did they have old airplanes that needed to be replaced? Their fleet was just simply outdated. Or was there, did they have imprecise instruments? Were there pilots lacking in training? Or were they perhaps overworked and you can only work so many nights in a row before it starts to impact? These would all be likely scenarios you would imagine, but no, none of those likely causes were actually at the root. So what was the problem? After a, a detailed study, what they found was poor communication between the captain and the first officer. What was often happening was the first officer would note a problem, but would gently hint at the problem to the pilot in such a way that he didn't realize how urgent the problem was. So for example, the first officer would look out, would see ice all over the wings of the airplane such they could not take off, it would not be safe, and would say, boy, it's pretty cold out there, isn't it? <laughs> Intending to communicate, we're frozen over, this is going to be a disaster, we have to wait, we have to get things thought off, and he would only say, boy, it's kind of cold out there, isn't it? Not realizing the, well, actually, he did realize, but the pilot then wouldn't be realizing the significance of the problem, right? The communication was a major problem. And, and what I think we'll see is it's sort of a parallel here in the way that the, the communication there worked. There's a similar relationship of how we communicate with ourselves about work and rest in our lives. That we have an urgent problem, and instead of saying, mayday, mayday, we say, I'm okay. It's a little cold outside. I've been a little busy. I'm a little overworked, but who isn't? And, uh, you know, it's like John Mayer told us. We're slow dancing in a burning room and not making appropriate adjustments in our lives. And especially coming out of a pandemic, we're seeing more and more studies that are talking about these kinds of issues. I saw one in The Guardian uh, recently from a, a doctor named Dr. Ahona Guha, a Australian doctor. And I want you to listen to what Dr. Guha had to say. She wrote, work is a solace and a way of seeking meaningful engagement, structure, and routine. But too much work on a continuing basis veers into the harmful. People need time to unplug, to play, to rest their brains and bodies and remind themselves of their disparate identities and roles. It's interesting, she notes the goodness of work. This is helpful, this is good for us. But it must not be an all-consuming identity, otherwise it becomes very harmful. And many of the studies that, that I've seen and looked for along these lines, they really focus on overwork in the context of the workplace. It's probably easier to measure and to, to generate some data in that way. But our inability to rest goes far beyond vocational problems, workplace conditions. You can ask any retiree, and they'll often tell you they're busier than they've ever been before. Or try asking a stay-at-home mom how she's going to be able to Sabbath from her work as a homemaker. Or ask a student what life is like between going to school, studying for high-stakes exams, being involved in multiple extracurriculars, and trying to find time to Sabbath. Versus is far greater than just workplace conditions are less than ideal. And it's actually far greater than merely a post-pandemic problem. Right, I, I saw this week alone, I saw a 2006, so 15, 16-year-old study uh, from a, a Japanese research firm talking about overwork resulting in brain and heart disease. Interesting. A 2004 study from a British journal showing that overworked employees are more tense, more confused, and overly fatigued. It was 100 years ago that the U.S. first passed our first child labor laws in 1916. It was 1792, 93, right after the French Revolution, that the, the revolutionaries tried to install a 10-day work week. 
to maximize efficiency, more productivity, get more done. And it only lasted a number of years before suicide rates spiked. They had animals dying left and right and destroying the economy, and a just growing pervasive sense of depression among the population. They said, this is a terrible idea. We need to go back to the seven-day work week. All of that to say, our inability to stop working, actually rest, and enjoy what God has given us is not a pandemic problem, it's not an American problem, and it's not even a recent problem. It's a human problem. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is just be super practical and see the pattern that God has given us for Sabbath rest in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and help us think through, how do I find the deep rest for my body and my soul and the renewal in what God has given and who he's done that he has designed you for? He's literally designed you to experience that rest and that renewal in him and in his good gifts. We often don't think about it in those terms, but it's important that we take seriously this pattern that's given to us in Genesis 2. So what I want to do this morning is ask and answer three basic questions. We'll ask and hopefully answer, one, what is Sabbath? Two, why don't we Sabbath? And then third, how should we Sabbath? So what is Sabbath? Why don't we Sabbath? And how should we Sabbath? First question, then what is Sabbath? Some of you may have seen, some of you participated in a little informal social media poll, a survey I took this week, and I asked, what is Sabbath? And the most frequent result was rest. People said Sabbath is rest. Many said Sabbath is made for man. Many said Sabbath is holy. Many said Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. I did get a few surprise responses. One person told me that Sabbath was Master's Sunday, specifically the back nine. Someone else told me Sabbath was Bitcoin. I didn't understand that either. But the most colorful response, and and I hope you'll chuckle at this and it might be a bit uh, piercing to the men in the room, but the most colorful response was this. One individual commented, the Sabbath is the day for men to attend church, rest, watch football, and nap. The Sabbath is a day like all other days for women. As she gets ready for church, cooks for the family, cleans up after the meals, picks up after the children and pets, changes kids' clothes for play, tries to keep them quiet while dad naps, figures out what to do with the pile of Sunday school papers the kids brought home from church, breastfeeds the baby, puts children down for naps, changes the majority of the diapers, and doesn't nap. Not entirely wrong, probably, there. But we've got all sorts of ideas about what the Sabbath is, and we could continue pulling social media and asking what people think, or we could go back to the scriptures and say, what does God say about this? And let's let that be our anchor point, our plumb line that defines where we go. So look back at Genesis 2, and we start to see a principle laid out. Uh, What I'll remind you of, we said the last two weeks that the book of Genesis is like an acorn where we see in seed form what will grow into a sprawling oak tree throughout the rest of scripture. And so we'll see some seed principles here in Genesis 2 about this idea of Sabbath rest that will grow throughout the rest of the scriptures. Verse 2, we read, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and, on, and he rested, important word to note there, on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested, same word again, from all his work that he had done in creation. That word rested is the verb form of the word Sabbath. So sometimes Sabbath shows up as a verb, to Sabbath, I'm Sabbathing, he Sabbathed. Other times it's a noun, the Sabbath, that particular day of the week in the Israelite nation. We see here in Genesis 2, 2 and 3, two times the verb form show up of Sabbath. Throughout the sermon, I'll kind of use those interchangeably, and I think it will be fairly clear whether I mean the verb or the noun, but it's important to see Uh, what's actually there in the pages of Scripture. The resting, it's a word that could be translated two ways. This to Sabbath is both to rest, but also to cease from work. It it, it sort of means both, and it's hard to say either this or only that. It's a both and kind of understanding. Notice also the Sabbath is blessed and made holy. Made holy, it's sanctified, it's set apart. 
It's a unique day. Why? Because of the resting that God did. Simple reading of the text shows us that. Also interesting for us to note, if you just place yourself in this timeline of the first week of the creation of the universe, what was mankind's first day on the earth doing? Resting and enjoying the presence of God with the good things that God had given him in creation. Then an interesting way to just think about and look at mankind's first day on this earth. I've also told you over the last couple of weeks that much of Genesis is written as an argument against the other ideologies of the day, against what the Egyptians may have said or the Babylonians or the other Mesopotamians, these other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And the Sabbath is also an argument against everything that they had said because there is no counterpart for Sabbath in the ancient Near Eastern world. There's nothing like this. And we'll return to that later on this morning as we think through what the application means. But it's God setting apart his people and saying, you will be different. Where everyone else is striving and the strivings never cease, yours will and you will experience my blessing in resting and ceasing from work. We see this principle, it's not yet a command, it's a principle unfolding, and I'm just going to rattle through a bunch of scriptures here. Feel free to jot them down as we go. Some will be on the screen, some will not. Genesis 2 at first shows up. Exodus 16, we're not yet to a command. This is where the Israelites are given manna, and the principle of Sabbath is again affirmed. Collect on six days. On the sixth day, I'll give you extra for the seventh. Principle is reaffirmed. Four chapters later, Exodus 20, 10 commandments. Two Sabbath now becomes a command. God gives it to Moses in the Ten Commandments. Notice the principle in Genesis 2, the principle in Exodus 16, prior to the command in Genesis, or Exodus 20, rather. Then, Exodus 31, the temple is built, and after the temple is built, people are busy doing the work that God has called them to. He tells them to rest because... On the seventh day, the Lord rested. And there's an interesting phrase that's included in Exodus 31 that says, he rested and was refreshed. It's like the acorn is expanding. I'm seeing a little more clearer picture of what happens on Sabbath. There's a refreshment, an enjoyment, a delight that comes. Exodus 34, then the Sabbath is reaffirmed. And God specifically points out, during plowing and harvesting season, you still Sabbath. Why is that included? Well, in an agrarian society, those are the two busiest times of the year. And so it's as, as if God is saying, even in the busy times where you have to work extra hard and it's right for you to be working longer hours, even so, you still need the Sabbath. Interesting to see that. We zip ahead to Leviticus 23, and the acorn unfolds even a little bit more, that the Sabbath now includes uh, what Leviticus 23.3 calls a holy convocation. 20, Leviticus 23, 24, calls it a solemn assembly, where this resting and enjoyment of God and what God has done is now being done corporately with God's people. This acorn continues to unfold. We get a clearer picture throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 5 then opens up a whole nother aspect, and this is on the screen. This is important for us to see. Deuteronomy 5, 15 Turn your eyes there. We read, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's the idea of redemption. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You see, that, that's a, a new concept in the scope of the scriptures being brought out, that there's a, a freedom, a liberation from slavery that is celebrated on the Sabbath, not merely resting, but a more specific kind of enjoyment. So from a quick survey of these first five books of the Old Testament, we're starting to see a clearer picture of resting, ceasing, enjoying God and his good gifts and the redemption that is brought. This is what Sabbath is starting to bring. It's starting to bring in the ideal of Leviticus 23, of a holy convocation, a solemn assembly where God's people are together. And then we zoom all the way ahead to the New Testament. And in Mark 2, there's some questions about did the disciples violate the Sabbath? Did they break the rules? 
And I'll, I'll read what's on the screen in just a moment, but, but recognize Jesus had a couple of options. As the Pharisees are questioning, did you guys break the Sabbath? He very easily could have said, oh, no, 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 you guys misunderstood. That was an Old Testament thing. We're good now. That's obsolete. We've moved on from that. But that's not what he says. Listen to what he says. Look, look at the screen now. He says, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus says, he doesn't discard it as he could, but says, no, this was made for your benefit, for you to stop working, to rest, to enjoy me, my gifts, and the redemption I've provided. And I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the principle still holds even as it's carried out in different ways. Right? So, so this specific command to the Israelites that it be obeyed in a certain way will morph and change, but a general principle of Sabbath rest persists. We zoom ahead to one more passage. I said I'd give you a whole bunch of them. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, we get another angle, a more full picture of this idea of Sabbath rest. Here we read in Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Hebrews 4 saying, there is a Sabbath rest waiting for you. It's an eternal look ahead to where I will forever rest in the presence of Jesus because of the work of Jesus with the people that he's bought with his blood. So God rested, commands us to rest, and we're looking forward to a complete and full and whole rest where our strivings really can cease. The quick snapshot of what's said there. See, we rest, and I've said this several times, I'll say it again, by enjoying God and his gifts and the redemption that he has provided so if we're starting to pull all of this together and answering the question, what is Sabbath, we're beginning to recognize it's not a mandate, but a principle. It goes beyond ceasing to involve enjoying, not merely don't work, but do do this. It's not frustration, right? Oftentimes it feels, man, there's so much to do. I, I, I. No, that's not the idea of Sabbath rest. It's not frustration. It's a blessing to be received, and it goes beyond a ritual of I can do this, I can't do that, to be worshiped to our God. We're starting to get a, a fuller picture there. And understand that even as I begin to say that, some of you are sort of cringing in your seats, you're a little squirmy, like, oh man, what's this mean? Am I not supposed to like go to travel sports this afternoon? Am I really have to put the email away this afternoon? And oh, this feels like such a constraint on my life. And friends, I want to encourage you this morning to see Sabbath rest as a gift and as a grace, not a mandate of ritualistic rule-keeping. Look at how Paul Tripp says this. He says, it seems ridiculously obvious to say, but nonetheless important, that you will never get 30 hours in a day, <laughs> and you'll never grab nine days in a week, and you will always need Sabbath rest, no matter how mature you become or how many leaders work alongside you. Every limit that God has set for us has been set because God knows whom he's created. He knows how we were designed to live. And in love, he does not require more of us than we're capable of doing. Limits not only reveal his wisdom, they also express his love. Limits are not a prison, they are a grace. That's how we need to be seeing the Sabbath. And so I began by asking the question of what is Sabbath? And I want to give you a fairly thick definition. A lot of the definitions I read in my research, it's like it encompassed a part, but it was incomplete, and so it was concise, but lacking. So let me give you a definition, and I'd like you to write this down. I'll give you a second to write it. It is kind of a mouthful. Um, Here's what it is to Sabbath. To Sabbath is to cease from your work and find deep rest for the body and soul through the enjoyment of God's grace and celebration of Jesus' finished work on the cross. I'll give you a second to write that. To Sabbath is to cease from your work, find deep rest for the body and soul 
through the enjoyment of God's grace and celebration of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And what I hope you'll do with that is I hope that you'll write that down and that can be sort of an anchor point for you to come back and think through what is Sabbath rest, how do I need to practice Sabbath rest and receive the blessing that God has for me. And so you can kind of work through that sentence yourself or with a friend or with a spouse and it can be kind of a a thick slab of meat that you can start to cut up and you know, chew on and taste the benefits from. Because I, I understand when we talk about Sabbath and reorienting schedules and what our life looks like, that's not a rapid thing, right? You've got rhythms in place for a reason. And if you're going to make a change, it takes some time to do that. It's, it takes some time to chew it up, to make sure this is the meal I actually want to eat, and then to be nourished by it. All right, so that's, that's what we'll look at there. One, one thing that is important to recognize here is that this is more, it's a, a deeper, a thicker understanding than Sabbathing from my phone or sitting down to watch some football or taking a nap, right? You see, that's maybe a thin understanding. No, we want a thick, robust, biblical understanding of what is meant here. You might say that Sabbath is a bit like REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. It takes some work to get there. You don't lay down for eight one-hour naps and say, man, I had a full night's sleep. I feel great. Sometimes that's how we talk about Sabbath. I'm just going to Sabbath for my phone for the day. Well, it might be good to take a break from your phone, but you're not really Sabbathing in the biblical sense. Maybe one final way to think about this. A couple years ago, we were at a playground with our kids in Alabama, and we were running around. It was one of those older playgrounds that was all wooden, and there's all kinds of fun elements. And our four-year-old, Rayanne, was running her hand along one of the, the handrails. And a 25-year-old playground, all wood, you can imagine what happens. You've got little wood particles sticking up. And she caught about a four-inch splinter right in the palm of her hand. It's about an inch in and three inches out. And she understandably freaked out immediately. <laughs> ah, what's going on? Ah, you know, tears, blood, the, the whole thing. It, it was a mess. And fortunately, it was long enough that we could hold her hand still, and the long piece that was sticking out enabled us to pull it out, and it wasn't too difficult. But the reality is, as you're running your hand against the grain on an old piece of wood, it's only a matter of time until you're going to get splinters. And what we see in Genesis 2 is that the idea of Sabbath rest is baked into the fabric of the universe. And you can only go against the grain of the universe and not practice Sabbath rest for so long before you're guaranteed to get splinters. And I don't want you to get splinters. And they may not come out as easily as Rayanne's splinter came out. And it can become infected and cause you all kinds of problems. So Sabbath is a really important principle from the Bible. I hope you're beginning to see that and think, man, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I at least need to think about how I could practice or should practice Sabbath rest. So why don't we? That brings us to the second point. Why don't we practice Sabbath rest? The easy explanation is, of course, to look externally and see the factors in my life that presently keep me from Sabbathing. And my kids are so little, they require so much attention, there's no way I could take a break from them. If I did, it would take three weeks to catch up from it. Maybe you're a student, you say, Justin, I hear what you're saying, it sounds kind of good, it sort of makes sense, but between studying and the upcoming exams and the sports that we have and the, the, the school play and the musical that's coming up, I, I just don't see how that could even happen. Maybe you think about the employees that work under you, you say, man, you don't know how much they struggle and how much oversight they need, Justin, there's no way I can take time off. Or maybe it's, it's the other side of the coin there, where your boss is so demanding, so heavy-handed, so invasive, such a micromanager, there's no way he would allow you to get any time away. And I don't understand how that could work. Maybe it's not job-related at all. You say, just God has gifted me as a helper, and I love to help people, and I help them in all sorts of ways, but I don't rest because I'm always out busy helping. Now, all of these are legitimate in thinking through why we don't Sabbath, but none of those are the real reason we don't Sabbath. We've got to move past the externals and look more deeply, more internally for a more complete explanation. And the reason that we don't Sabbath is because we allow good things to become ultimate things. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. 
We have a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, and I can't ever step away from the, that thing and recognize it as a good thing because it owns me. Jeremiah 2 is really interesting in describing this. Jeremiah 2.13, we read how God describes this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've turned away from me. I'm the one, the fountain of living waters, who wants to give you rest and joy and life and peace. And you've turned away from me and you've tried to create your own bucket and it's got a hole in the bottom of it and you keep trying to fill it up, pouring water in and you go to take a drink and there's never anything there and you wonder why. Because you've allowed a good thing to become an ultimate thing and it's not strong enough to hold the water you keep pouring in. It's like, it's like our cup is a brown paper bag on the bottom and we pour water into it and we go to drink and we wonder why it keeps falling out. Because it's not strong enough to hold what you're trying to put into it. To cite a New Testament example, you might think of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Both doing good things. One busy serving, one sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says that Mary, who sits at his feet, has chosen the one thing that is necessary. He doesn't say the serving is a bad thing. He just says there's one thing that's necessary. And I wonder this morning if you have lost sight of the one thing that is necessary. Filled up with good things, becoming ultimate things, and you didn't necessarily even realize this morning there was some idolatry at the core of your heart, and perhaps the Holy Spirit is pulling back the curtain just a bit and helping you to see something you didn't see in your heart before. You see, this, this is an essential question. It's difficult to answer, isn't it? It's kind of hard to really internalize and think through. I know it is for me. Like, okay, what is it that these are all good things I'm doing? Which of them has become ultimate things? That's it's difficult to ask ourselves that and to honestly reflect. I'm reminded of Rocky Balboa in the first movie where there's a um, kind of a classic scene where, uh, where he's laying in bed next to Adrian and she's kind of asking like, why, is, why, why are you training so hard? Why are you going so crazy? Why is, it, why is this so nuts? And he says, well, nobody's ever gone the distance against Apollo Creed. Nobody's ever done that. And if I can go the distance, it's a striking scene. If you've seen it, you know, he's lying in a, in a, a moment of tenderness for this strong hulk of a man laying in bed. He kind of whispers. He says, if I can go the distance, then I can know for the first time in my life that I'm not a bum. I can really know. I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood, he says. And I wonder if deep down, subconscious for many of us, sometimes on a cold, dark night when you're alone in your bedroom, you start to have those thoughts run through your mind. You're asking, do I measure up? Am I good enough? Have I proven to myself that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood like Rocky? I mean, other times, I think we just don't live in light of our limits. It's like Imagine getting a Sharpie out and going to your car and just taking that Sharpie and coloring right in front of the fuel gauge and then wondering why you run out of gas on a regular basis. And I wonder if you're not living your life in a similar manner, just not in view of your limits of how God has designed you, of where you find renewal and grace and fuel to live the Christian life. We do need to step and ask ourselves, what is it that I'm resting in? Where do I think I'm going to find rest? Is it rest in my work ethic? That I can prove to myself that I'm not lazy? Maybe for some of us that's the case. Maybe you rest in your job. Say, man, this is really where I find myself. This is where I rest. And I, I couldn't imagine life without this job because it defines me. And so it leads you to Rest in that instead of resting in Jesus. Maybe you say, Justin, that's not particularly my story. My parents weren't really there for me, and so I have resolved that I will always be there for my kids. I will be the parent to them that I wish that I had, and I will rest in my identity as a good mom, a good dad who's always there for them, who always provides for them. Maybe you felt you received your parents' love only when you were accomplishing things. 
And so in a twisted way, you begin to think you can only receive God's love when you're accomplishing things for his kingdom, for others around you, and you rest in your doing. That's why the old hymn would say, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, rest in him alone, perfectly complete. Maybe you've got a just exacting conscience that is constantly beating you up. And you find rest in trying to prove to yourself and to God that you actually are a pretty good person. And it's an internal judge that you can never put to rest, but you're constantly trying. And you rest in those activities. There's all kinds of things we find this rest in. But if I could dig just a little bit more here, I wonder if sometimes there's even something a touch deeper in our lives that when we think about ourselves, we would say, you know, Justin, I don't necessarily sit at Jesus' feet the way I'm supposed to. I don't necessarily empathize with others, with my spouse, with my kids like I'm supposed to. I don't really talk to my neighbors about Jesus like I'm supposed to. But the reason that I fill my life with so much busyness and I'm unable to Sabbath is not just I don't do those things, but I don't know how to. I don't know how to sit at Jesus' feet. I've lost sight of that. I'm scared that if I tried to really empathize with people, I wouldn't know how to. Or if I tried to engage my neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't know how to. And so it's easier, it's better to fill my life up with busy things, good things that are becoming ultimate things, and they're grabbing me. And I think I have good things, but good things have me. We're in deep water here. We're in really deep water here. This is why we regularly say that the human heart is an idle factory. It's constantly seeking rest beyond Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's always seeking rest somewhere. To say it differently and to borrow the language from Deuteronomy 5 that we looked at a few minutes ago, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to our insecurities and to our needs. We're enslaved to our thoughts of self-salvation and proving we're good enough to God. We're enslaved to our family's hopes. We're enslaved to our company or to cultural expectations of us. See, this question of why we don't Sabbath is difficult for us to ponder. Yet by the grace of God, his spirit lives in, peels back the darkness in our heart, and allows us to see where the good things have become ultimate things, where our rest is ill-placed, and begins to prompt us ever so gently forward, saying, how then should I proceed? It's scary to think about. I'm not sure what it should look like. But I'm willing to at least hear you out for another 12 minutes, Justin. Let's ask that third question. How should we Sabbath? How should we do this? How should we Sabbath? Fundamental to the idea of Sabbath is understanding the creator, God, and everything and everyone else as creation. That we were created to find rest in him as the creator, not ourselves or the other things in creation. The good things in creation we're supposed to enjoy as pointers to the creator. So then when we're tired, when I say, I need rest, I feel burnt out, I feel overworked, what we need is not another vacation, most fundamentally, not another date night, most fundamentally, not a better bonus, not tickets to a better show in a better stadium. We need something fundamentally different. And this is honestly, I think, where Sabbath gets a little bit tricky for us because there are certain rules that we read about in the Bible. And I think that feels exacting. That feels precise. That feels heavy-handed. And this is supposed to be a rest to my soul. There's supposed to be fulfillment and joy and life that's coming. And life doesn't seem to flow out of rules for me. 
And so we don't know how to think about these things. And I, I read an article in the New York Times not too long ago by a gal named Judith Shulovitz, and she just helped to encapsulate some of these thoughts well that I think will sort of frame in this last bit about how do we Sabbath. Listen to what Shulovitz said in the New York Times. She wrote, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. It's not that simple. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as social sanction. Maybe you've been on a vacation before and you can testify to what she said, that it didn't start to feel like a restful vacation until about day four. Because you don't just, well, I'm not working anymore. Friday I worked, Saturday we're driving somewhere. I'm on vacation. It doesn't work that way. It's really hard to unplug. It's really hard to truly rest, not just take a nap, or watch a football game. And so when we think about how to Sabbath, there's two categories we have to think about. There's an external ca category and an internal category, and you have to get both, all right? The internal is more important than the external, but if you don't get the external as well, the internal's not gonna work in your soul the way it's supposed to, all right? So let me start with the external practices, and then we'll move to the internal. External practices, how to Sabbath. Sabbath on schedule. Sabbath on schedule. The principle of the Bible from beginning to end tells this should be a weekly rhythm. A weekly rhythm. And I know as soon as I say that, everybody's mind goes to how their life is the exception. And there are occasional exceptions, right? You go through med school and you go through your, your clinical rotations, you're going to have to change what Sabbath looks like in that season. But what generally happens is everybody thinks that their life is the exception, their season of life is the exception, and we don't actually take seriously the commands of the Bible. I would just simply ask you, as you're evaluating the season you're in, and is Sabbath really out of the picture here, be careful in suggesting that you're wiser than God. Be careful in suggesting you're wiser than God. And, and some of you will look at that and say, Justin, I have to work on Sunday. It's not an option for me. Me too. I get that. Sometimes there are legitimate exceptions. Others of you look at, well, what about travel sports? Does that mean we can't do this or do that? The nuance, I probably can't address every single one here in this forum, but I would simply say this. Is your life built around being a Christian, or do you build your life as you want it, chasing the things that you desire, and see where there's space to fit in your Christianity in the margins? And I think if you'll just sit down and have that fundamental conversation, you might not be able to change what the next seven days of your life will look like, but I think by the time you get to six months from now, you can start to see a change. It takes time to work through these things. You have to Sabbath on schedule. You also have to Sabbath with balance. Sabbath with balance. So I, I, I Sabbath with schedule. I put a time on the calendar where I'm Sabbathing, but I, I Sabbath with balance as well. And by balance, what I mean is this. You're going to need some, con well, I don't know how to say this. Is it contemplative or contemplative? I don't know. You need some contemplative time to sit at the feet of Jesus like Martha did. To merely sit, there's nothing on the calendar, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to have, allow my Bible to read me, I'm going to talk to God, maybe you're sipping some coffee while you do that, but it's time where I can sit in silence and solitude. For many of us, we start to think about these things, and it's, you're seeing, okay, I need to limit distractions for contemplative time. My devices need to be in another room. The TV needs to be off. It can be challenging to Sabbath on a day that's completely filled with ministry activities. Right? That can get in the way of Sabbath. doesn't mean that you never do anything, but you recognize there's only so much I can do here. 
but not just contemplative time, but you need time when you Sabbath with balance for restorative activity, restorative activity. The great question, to mow or not to mow, that maybe isn't what Hamlet was talking about. But there's all sorts of other activities that might be restorative and they might not. And I can't just give you a hard and fast rule. Let's not be pharisaical here. But is exercise a restorative activity for you? Is folding the laundry a restorative activity? Is reading a book or studying a restorative activity? Look, I, I can tell you a lot of times near the end of when I Sabbath, in the warm weather, mowing the grass is one of the most restorative things I could ever do. Don't put a podcast in, don't do any of that, just get out, push that mower, smell the grass, have the wind blow across my face, and it is the most refreshing, I love mowing the grass. But there are others of you, like, Justin, that sounds horrendous. That would not be restorative for me at all. Then don't do it! Like, don't, don't complicate the matter. I remember when I was working for a roofing company, and it was long days, it was super hot, and one of the ways I Sabbath was I went to the library and I got a good book out and I got to engage my brain in ways I didn't get to engage it during the week. Right, so in different seasons, with different vocations, what it looks like for restorative activity is going to be different. We recognize that, we're not hard and fast on a rule here. But you need to ask yourself, does this activity provide deep rest for my body and soul? Is it doing that? So you think about contemplative time, restorative activity, but also think about aesthetic beauty. When I Sabbath, how do I include aesthetic beauty in that scheduled Sabbath? Maybe it's the beauty of nature. It was, it was kind of warm this week. You could have bundled up and gone out for a walk for you know, a mile or two and just enjoyed the fresh air. You enjoy the beauty of good food and good drink. Maybe you think about ways you can create beauty. You like to draw, you like to write, you're good at photography and you're gonna go and look for one of those opportunities to uh, you know, craft the perfect picture. Maybe you like to cook and the opportunity of being creative in the culinary arts is this is a restorative activity for me. But you start to put all that together where I have contemplative time, restorative activity, and I'm engaging in aesthetic beauty. You start to put all of that together on a weekly schedule. Wow, this is really starting to restore my body and soul. Third external practice, Sabbath in community. So you Sabbath on schedule, Sabbath with balance. You Sabbath in community. Part of that means you're seeking others like you. I say for people in this particular vocation, particular season of life, how are you doing this? What are you figuring out? What's helpful for you? Because there's always particular challenges to where you're at in life, and it's important that we link arms with other brothers and sisters that can help us grow towards Jesus. It's also good to seek, seek older, wiser counsel from people who have been there and say, boy, this is really difficult for me. I, do, I see the principle in the Bible, I see my life, and I don't see how it's possible. How did you try to do this in this season of life? Really important to do that. But another important part of Sabbathing in community is exactly what you are doing right now. Now, again, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, saying you can't do this, can't do that, I don't want to get all rulesy on it, but just think for a moment about the beauty of what's happening right here, that on the first day of the week, you're gathering to celebrate Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, with the first fruits of the new creation that he's creating in the universe and worshiping by giving of the first fruits of what you've earned to his kingdom. That's a pretty beautiful way to kick off a Sabbath or to conclude it if you start in the middle of the day on Saturday. You see why that's attractive to Christians throughout the ages is to recognize the deep rest for body and soul that comes by worshiping the God of the universe with the people of God, through the word of God, seeing the truths together. It's a wondrous thing. Those are all external. And here's the thing. We're gonna get to the internal ones here. If you only do the external, external practices without what's to come internally, you are not going to experience Sabbath the way God intends it. In other words... If you feel like I've been giving you some life hacks for the last five to seven minutes, you're not entirely wrong. Principles from the Bible 
but the internal declarations that come along with the external practices are far more important. You've got to get this last bit down, otherwise you won't find rest in the Sabbath the way God intended. So there's two internal declarations that are absolutely critical. You have to do this while you Sabbath. Here's the first one, you declare liberation. You declare liberation because there's all sorts of things that we're enslaved to, we talked about that, that make it seem like I can't take Sabbath rest. And when I take the time to rest as God has designed, I'm declaring I don't need the approval from these sources. I've been liberated from them. I have freedom from others' expectations. Those who say I'm a failure, I look and I say, no, through the person, the work of Jesus Christ, I'm not a failure. I'm fully accepted by God, fully loved by him. Yes, have my flaws, but being changed into his image. And I'm freed from serving what you say about me. I've been liberated. You're saying to yourself, I've been freed, I've been liberated from the internal judge inside my heart that says you have to do these things to measure up. You have to work this much harder. Your house has to be this much cleaner. You have to log this many billable hours. Saying, no, I've been liberated from that. I've got a rest in Jesus that's better than anything this world can provide. And so I'm declaring my liberation from those lesser gods that want to enslave me. It means that I'm not self-justifying, that Jesus has freed me from life on the hamster wheel. There's a better life to be lived than keeping up with the Joneses and the rat race that it always feels like. And so as I Sabbath, as I declare liberation, I collapse into the arms of Jesus, tired, fatigued, worn out, scared that I can actually do this. But by declaring liberation, through the blood of Jesus, it allows me to unplug without feeling guilty. Saying, I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be there, I'm supposed to be saying this or doing that. And you've got to be able to unplug without feeling guilty. And so you internally declare by the blood of Jesus, you've been liberated from all these external factors that are saying you have to do this or be here. The second declaration is a declaration of trust. It's a de I'm declaring, God, that I trust you, that you are my creator, and you're my provider. I don't need these things because God will provide for them. Because for some of you, as soon as I start to talk about Sabbath and time away, it's not that you feel necessarily enslaved to certain things that we've talked about, but you're simply saying, Justin, I don't know how these legitimate needs in my life get met. I need all 168 hours of the week. And if I don't have them, it can't all get done. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't know how it's going to happen, Justin. Nice of you to stand on a stage and talk about taking a break, but you're not the one staring down the creditors. Guys, I get that. This can be really scary. Part of this is why we Sabbath in community because as a community, we come together to meet each other's needs. This is why we have a benevolence fund, to come alongside and meet tangible needs so that people can live as God has designed them to live and not be a slave to that job that continues and continues and continues and never stops. So reach out to myself, any of the pastors, any of the deacons. They can get you connected to the benevolence fund. But I'm declaring when I say with God, I trust you. You'll provide for me. I don't exactly see how this is going to happen, but I know that I'm not wiser than you, so I'm going to follow the principles that you've laid out. Even, God, as you, the creator of the universe, would rest from your work, so I will rest from mine. You'll recall at the outset I said that the idea of Sabbath was not found in other ancient Near Eastern philosophies. Guys, the reality is it's not really found in modern philosophies either. Now, you might find something that talks about the need for rest, the need for meditation, the, the need for any sort of, you know, Eastern mysticism and things to, to be more aware of yourself. But you won't find anyone saying, here's where the true and better rest is actually found. It's like, 
we've always said, you, you often hear us say this, at the end of the Buddha's life, what did he say? Final words? Keep striving. Stay at it. Keep working. You'll get there eventually. And Jesus, in contradiction to him and every other philosophy, completes the work on the cross that you couldn't live the perfect life you couldn't, died the death you should have, and says, it is finished. Come into my rest. Collapse into my arms. Guys, in a tangible and real way, Sabbath is evidence of your saving faith in Jesus. Jesus, I believe you're my provider. I believe you are my sustainer. I believe you will liberate me from the enslavement that I feel. And I'm going to take a step of faith, not knowing how it will work out, but trusting that what you have said and what you have designed is what's best for me where I look ahead and say, Jesus, I can't wait to fully rest in your presence. That's why he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, we live in a world that is badly in need of rest. One of my fears this morning, to be honest with you, is we have this talk about what, how God rested, and we walk out thinking, Yep, I need to take a little more time away from work. I need to rest, cease from that. But you don't make it all the way to the internal declarations of where the true rest is found in Jesus Christ, and you don't proclaim the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. You don't remember him on the cross saying, it's finished. So as we go to communion in a minute, yeah, there's some practical things that you'll probably need to think through in your life of how you practice Sabbath rest. But more fundamentally is asking yourself, why don't I Sabbath? Where am I enslaved? Where do I fail to trust God as my provider? And how do I cry out to Jesus, seeing his perfect life and his death on the cross that's meant to liberate me from enslavement, that allows me to trust him when it's scary, and remember that only in him can I truly find that rest. So we'll give you a couple of minutes here. You can take communion when you're ready. It's in the pews. And then we'll continue worshiping in song. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that in your love and in your wisdom and in your grace, you would prescribe for us the need to take a break and return to you our creator our king, our provider, our sustainer. And as we try to think through how to do that, God, I just pray you would give grace by your spirit to confess weakness, to confess our enslavement to this world, promising rest in ways that it cannot deliver that we would run to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, inviting us to come and sit with him, not to work, but to sit with him and enjoy what he has accomplished. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.